May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Why do you go to church? What what keeps you coming back week after week? Why why are you here? I remember having a conversation about this with a friend of mine recently, and it kind of brought the issue to mind because he didn't really see any purpose in going to the church he was going to week after week, or for that matter, to going to any church because he'd had similar experiences at all the churches he'd attended. What kind of experiences had he had? Well, he said, the teaching is not that great. I know all the stuff they're going to talk about already. I've already done a lot of reading in the Bible, and I've done a lot of reading in theology, and I just don't feel like I'm learning anything new from any of the preaching I hear at the churches I go to. I said, okay, is there any other reason to go to church? And he said, well, I guess the other reason would be fellowship. But really, all my best Christian friends are outside of my church, and you know, they're, those, they're the ones I enjoy spending time with. So I don't really feel like I fit in any of the churches I go to. I don't really feel like I get any fellowship there. So he said, I don't see why I don't see why I should go to church if I'm not being taught and I'm not having good fellowship. There's just no reason for me to go. And I think the way he expressed it and the reasons he gave for attending church are probably um, pretty representative of what most people would say in this country for why they go to church. They go to church, you know, first and maybe hopefully first and foremost to, to be taught, to be instructed, um, to learn about the Bible and to learn Christian doctrine. And then uh, secondarily, and, and but very importantly, they want to have uh, fellowship with other people in their congregation. They want to have friends there. They want to feel like they're a part of a, a group that's larger than themselves. And to be, to be sure, both of these things are very important. I think ministers have to labor very hard to give the best quality teaching they can to their congregations. And I think it's very important that a congregation should mesh and, and get along and have fellowship socially. But I think there's more reasons to go to church than that. I think those are the reasons we tend to focus on uh, in this country especially, in the, in the way that a lot of churches do church in this country. But I think there's more reasons to it than that. And what I really want to talk about, this is supposed to be a sermon on the Book of Common Prayer, but what I really want to talk about is the things that the Book of Common Prayer puts front and center that without it can easily get lost. So these are going to be reasons that we go to church that I think the Book of Common Prayer helps us to focus on and keep on our minds, and that without it, it would be very easy to neglect all of these three things. So I'm going to give three reasons why we go to church besides just teaching and fellowship, though those are important. And those three things are, number one, we are priests. We are priests making spiritual sacrifices. Two, we are proclaiming the gospel. Three, we are learning how to practice our private devotions. 
Uh, so I'm going to go through those three, and then at the, I want to wrap up the talk just by talking about some plausible objections people might have to using something like the Book of Common Prayer. Why, why might some people argue we shouldn't use something like this? Okay, so number one, first reason, we are priests making spiritual sacrifices. There is some confusion about the word priest, and it has to do with the English language. Most other languages have at least two words for our one word, priest. So we, took, we take two concepts and we put them together into the word priest, but in most other languages, those two concepts are clearly distinguished by two different words. So for example, in, uh, in the Greek, if you're reading the Greek um, Bible, um, there's a hieros, and that's one thing, and then there's a presbyteros, and that's another thing. But we, we put both of these concepts together when we have our, our English word priest. So what's the difference? Okay, a priest can be a religious official whose job is to make sacrifices. And usually these are what we call propitiatory sacrifices. So in other words, um, we can see this even in pagan religions, right? We think the gods are angry at us, or we want to placate the gods. We want to get them on our side. So we have our priest offer sacrifices so that the gods will be reconciled to us. The gods will put away their wrath from us, or they'll be favorably disposed towards us because we've set a priest aside, and he's going to offer sacrifices to please the gods. Um, that's one sense of the word priest. The other sense of the word priest in English just means a Christian minister. And that's actually where the word priest comes from. The word priest is actually a shortened form of the word presbyter, which is just the Greek word for an elder. So the, the English word priest actually comes from a word that just means an elder, a Christian elder. So you, you hear other churches talking about having elders and pastors and that sort of thing. That's, that's all the English word priest originally meant. There was originally an entirely different word that referred to somebody who made sacrifices on behalf of a temple or a religious function. So, in, in the Christian religion, do we have a priest that makes propitiatory sacrifices? We do. There is a priest in our religion whose job is to make a propitiatory sacrifice to um, make God pleased with us and so that he will, you know, his wrath will be turned away from us. But we've only got one, and that high priest is Jesus Christ. He offered a single propitiatory sacrifice, which was the sacrifice of his own body and blood in obedience upon the cross. And that was the only sacrifice we will ever need to reconcile us to God. It's the only one that exists in our religion. And in fact, if we read the book of Hebrews and other parts of the Bible, we know that the other sacrifices that were offered in the Old Covenant didn't really take away sins. They didn't really make God well disposed towards the Jews. They were just a symbol or a sign of the sacrifice that Jesus was to make that came later. So we have a priest in our religion, but just one, and he performed a single sacrifice that... Um, was perfect and sufficient to reconcile us to God. Now, this is something that sets us apart from, say, Roman Catholicism. 
Um, Roman Catholicism believes in the ability of Christian ministers to make ongoing propitiatory sacrifices. They think in some sense every mass that's said by a priest is some kind of fresh form of propitiatory sacrifice. Every time we're saying the mass, we're making God a little bit happier with us or we're turning away his wrath a little bit more and a little bit more. That's not what we believe. We believe that there was a single propitiatory sacrifice, and it doesn't need to be repeated. It doesn't need to be reoffered. It doesn't need to be renewed. It's just there, and it's doing its work, and it's done. So does that mean that's the only kind of sacrifice that exists in our religion? Any other kind of sacrifice is done with. It's a part of the Old Covenant. No. There are other sacrifices besides propitiatory sacrifices that we can still offer. And the theologians traditionally classified those as sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. You see, under the Old Covenant, there were offerings that were given to cleanse us from sin and to reconcile us with God. But then there were other sacrifices that were given just to be pleasing to God, just so that we'd have something to offer him um, that we know he would enjoy and that we know would give him glory um, and those kinds of sacrifices we can still perform. But they're not sacrifices of animals. They're, they're not sacrifices that have to be in any tangible, um, any tangible sense. We can offer sacrifices to God of praise, telling him about his wonderful attributes and his wonderful works, his exaltedness and his glory. And we can offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, giving thanks for all the gifts that he's given us in our life. And when we do that, we are priests. Okay? The New Testament, when it uses the word that refers to somebody who makes sacrifices, it only ever refers to Jesus performing his one perfect and sufficient sacrifice, or it refers to Christians altogether and says, We are all a royal priesthood. Okay? So be, through the new covenant, by being accepted into God's kingdom, we were all made into priests. And just like under the old covenant, priests could offer sacrifices to God. We all have the power now to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving whenever we want to. And although we can do that whenever we want to, there's something especially fitting, and there's something that the New Testament says is especially glorious about us coming together and offering together our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. So I would say that's another reason we should be at church on a regular basis is so that we can exercise that priesthood together of giving God praise and honor and glory and giving him thanks for all the blessings that he gives to us. Now, of course, this raises a question, a, 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 a controversial and somewhat vexed question, is the Lord's Supper a sacrifice? Um, and I think from what I've said, you might already know how I'm going to answer that. It's not a propitiatory sacrifice because that propitiatory sacrifice already happened. It, only, it could only happen once, and that was by Jesus' obedient death on the cross. But we can still give a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God, praising him for offering his son Jesus and sending him to lead a perfect and obedient life among us, and giving thanks for the holiness and righteousness that's been secured to us by that sacrifice, and that's exactly the type of sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that the Lord's Supper is supposed to help us do and to remember and to perform. So there is a sense in which it is a sacrifice, but we have to approach it in the right way. Now, all Christians are called to make 
sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. That's nothing unique to being Anglican. That's that's nothing unique to our denomination or our, or our theology. Um, in in the in the Baptist church across town, when they're singing hymns and they're singing it with a sincere intention to please God, that's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that they're giving. However, the advantage that we have with the Book of Common Prayer and the liturgy and the way it's laid out is it puts this front and center. It helps us to be reminded of this week after week that this is something that we're doing. It's written into the liturgy and it's written into the words there where it makes it much easier to remember, much harder to forget. So that's one advantage we get by having a, liturgi a liturgical form of worship informed by the Book of Common Prayer. We are constantly reminded that we are priests making spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Second reason that we should come to church. We are proclaiming a gospel. And I don't just mean to other people. I don't just mean we're proclaiming the gospel to those in our community that are lost and need to know that forgiveness for the first time, to, that need to come to know Jesus as Savior, though that is very important, and I think we should do that as well. But I'm talking about the way in which liturgy, week after week, is allowing us to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. Because if we're honest with ourselves, our faith is often very tenuous, it's very weak, um, it, it, it waxes strong and then wanes very weakly at other times in our life, and we need to be constantly refreshed on the gospel. We need to be constantly proclaiming the gospel if we're going to expect it to become ingrained in who we are. So how does our liturgy help us to learn how to proclaim the gospel both to ourselves and to others? Well, the first thing we have to realize is, is that if we analyze the gospel, there's multiple parts to it. And we really need all these parts to be working in tandem if we're going to grasp the gospel and be able to proclaim it in a full way. Bless you. And the first part of that process is that we need conviction of sin. Now, gospel means good news, and being convicted of sin does not sound like good news. But you can't experience the goodness of the good news until you realize the predicament that you're in. And so we have to uh, face up to the gravity of the condition that we're in and the condition of sin that we're in before we can even be prepared to hear the good news. Think of things like John the Baptist's preaching. John the Baptist began all his preaching from one idea, repent. We're in sin right now, and we need to turn away from that sin. That's the essential precondition before we can even start talking about the rest of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or think of something like the Sermon on the Mount, which no matter how many times we read and reread it and study it, it always seems to have something fresh for us when we read it to convict us of some kind of sin in our lives. It doesn't ever seem like we can come to the Sermon on the Mount uh, and get work through it and say, oh, I've got all that. It's all, it's all, I'm doing all that just fine. No, um, it, it always hits us because we, it always reminds us of ways that we are sinners and that we fall short. But then the second movement of the gospel is to move towards the gracious redemption that's offered to us through Jesus Christ. Um, think of uh, you know the one, that wonderful verse, John 3.16, 
Um, I think of the other verses, too, that are in uh, what we, our liturgy calls the comfortable words, right before we actually um, have the communion. Um, comfortable just means strengthening. These are words that are supposed to strengthen us with confidence in the gospel before we come to receive communion. Um, but uh, wonderful reminders of God's grace and the free offer of forgiveness that's been made to us in the gospel. And the last movement that we need to have for a full proclamation of what the gospel is, is we have to articulate what our response of gratitude to the gospel looks like. What does our response of gratitude to that redemption and forgiveness look like? So we can think of parts of scripture like the Great Commission. Jesus sends forth the disciples and tells them to baptize the nations, discipling them and commanding them to observe all things that I've commanded you. They are given, once their disciples are um, realize their sin and once they receive Jesus' forgiveness, they're given a task to do. We're not just um, supposed to rest on the laurels of our salvation, but we're given tasks and jobs and good works to be sent out into the world to do. Think of the parts of Paul's epistles that are kind of focused on application, on living the Christian life. This is a way of showing our gratitude of God's redemption of us. Think of the epistle of James, really focused on wise Christian living, um, which constitutes the, our way of showing our gratitude for God's redemption. So how, do, how does the liturgy um, help us to, to proclaim this full picture of the gospel better? Well, think, think of the structure of it. Our communion service, for example, is uh, separated into two halves. And if you have a, a Book of Common Prayer, you can follow along with this. So if you go to the Holy Communion service, which is on 60, begins on page 67, um, we have the Collect for Purity that we that we always say together. And then on the next page, we get either, bless you, the Decalogue on page 68. Or we get the summary of the law on page 69. So in a communion service, we're either reminded of God's law through the full reading of the Ten Commandments, or we're reminded of God's law through Jesus' summary of the law, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and our neighbor as ourselves. And that's right there at the beginning of the service so that we can begin from this posture of conviction of sin. We can, we can know the predicament that we're in before we move towards the redemption. And then um, after that, of course, we have the reading of God's word culminating with the gospel and the preaching in which we hear of God's redemption for us. That's the second um, part of the gospel that we proclaim through the liturgy. And then the last part um, goes when we respond in faith, confessing our faith with, uh, faith with the creed. And then bringing our offerings in the, uh, the offertory. And lastly, the prayers that we offer for the whole world on page 74 and 75. So we go from sin to redemption, then to confessing our faith, bringing our offerings, praying for the world as our response to the redemption that's been offered to us. Then we go through the same cycle over again. Right? The priest says, Ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. We're reminded again of our sinfulness, that we need redemption, and we, that we need a Savior. 
And then we go into the prayer of confession of sin. So that's, the, that's again, our convicting us of sin. Then we move into our redemption from sin when we hear of the absolution pronounced over us by Father Jim or by another priest. Now this is, uh, the absolution um, is something that um, people in a lot of other Protestant traditions might struggle with or might struggle to understand. And I found a great quote that I wanted to read to you. Uh, it's actually from John Calvin. So not, not, a, not a theological or Protestant lightweight by any means. But he has a commentary on John 2023. Now if you remember John 2023, Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he's sending out the disciples. And he says, one, one of the things he gives to the disciples, he says, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain are retained. So Jesus seems to give the disciples the power of forgiving sins. And Calvin says, it may be asked, since he appoints them, the disciples, to be only the witnesses or heralds of this blessing and not the authors of it, why does he extol their power in such lofty terms? It's not like the disciples are forgiving anyone's sins because they have the power to give people redemption. Only Jesus' sacrifices enable us to, to, to have redemption. So why does he seem to say that the, the disciples have the power to forgive sins? Calvin says, I reply, he did so in order to confirm their faith. Nothing is of more importance to us than to be able to believe firmly that our sins do not come into remembrance before God. And so Calvin argues that God has appointed ministers and pastors to speak as if, as if with the voice of God, their forgiveness of our sins, because the weakness of our faith needs that. We can't just believe in the, in the forgiveness of sins as an abstract promise existing out there. We need to hear the words from someone's mouth, your sins are forgiven. That's what our faith needs to be strengthened and to really believe it. And then um, this motion of redemption continues on page 76 um, with the comfortable words that I was mentioning earlier. We get some wonderful summaries of the Gospels. We give our praise to God, and then we partake of the Lord's Supper by which we remember Jesus' sacrifice that has given us redemption from sin. And in the last motion, our motion of gratitude, we have, a, we have prayers of thanksgiving and praise towards God. So again, we go through that same motion of doing those three parts of the gospel, of being convicted of our sins, of, of being made aware of the redemption that's been made available to us freely, and then our responding in gratitude to that. Now, of course, we can understand that all of these things are parts of the gospel without a liturgy. But a liturgy is very helpful for this because it's constantly bringing these things to mind. There are some weeks when I come to church, and what I most need to hear is the law. I need to hear the Ten Commandments. I need to hear the prayer of confession that I say during the communion service because I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner and that God's law matters and that I don't measure up to it. But there's other weeks 
when what I most need from when I come to church is to hear the absolution being pronounced over me, that I am forgiven. And there's other times when I need to come to church, and what I most need to do is be reminded that I need to respond in gratitude to the redemption that's been given to me. And without a liturgy, without something that we all have in common that we follow, that's standardized, that we're not just picking and choosing, without it, we have a tendency to specialize in one of these parts of the gospel or than other. Maybe you've been to churches like this. There are churches that specialize in conviction of sin. You come in the front door, you're told a sinner, yet you're a sinner, you know that you're a sinner, and you leave that church feeling just as much of a sinner as you felt like when you got there. You don't get those other parts of the gospel given to you. There are some churches that like to specialize in the redemption part of the gospel. It's all free grace. It's all free forgiveness. Don't worry about the law. Don't worry about God's standards of righteousness. Sin doesn't matter. But it does matter. We can't understand the redemption that we're supposed to receive until we understand the gravity of the sins that we've committed. And then there's churches that that, uh, specialize in the response of uh, gratitude to the salvation we were given and specialize in good works. Let's see if we can simultaneously clothe a homeless person as we're feeding them soup and proclaiming the gospel to them. It's like they're really specialists in that, and that's great, but that's not the whole gospel. We need to be hearing about our sin as well. We need to be hearing about the redemption given to us as well, or we're not going to have a full picture of the gospel. And the goodness of a liturgy is that it keeps the gospel in front of our eyes in all of its aspects and doesn't let us specialize in just one section of it or another. In a way, um, I was listening to someone talk about how uh, a Reformed pastor talk about how much he enjoys singing psalms as opposed to just hymns. Because hymns, as, as good as they are, are often more reflect our interests than they reflect the priorities of Scripture. And the goodness of singing psalms is that they often force us to sing or to say things that we're not so comfortable with. They hold before us parts of Scripture that we might not prefer to specialize in, but those are the ones we most need to be reminded of. And the last thing, the last point I wanted to say is that we're also, when we're coming to church every week, we're also learning how to pray privately as well. We're learning how to give adoration to God. When we're singing the Vanity, when we're singing the Gloria, we're learning what adoration looks like. When we're saying our confessions of sin, we're, we're knowing that confession of sin needs to be part of our private prayers as well. When we're giving thanksgiving in our prayers of thanksgiving, we're learning how to give thanks to God in our private devotions and our private life as well. When we're praying for those in government, when we're praying for those in the church, when we're praying for those who are sick or in distress, we're learning how to give supplicatory prayers in our private life for other people as well. So the liturgy is also helping us to learn how to pray not with one another on our own, learning how to have private prayer as well. So, uh, in closing, I just want to consider a, a few possible objections to people that people might have to using something like the Book of Common Prayer. Um, some people say, "Oh, if it's all written out ahead of time, 
then the, the prayers aren't going to be sincere. You're just going to be reading words off a page, and you're not going to be praying these prayers sincerely. But if someone in love with you sings you a song, serenades you with a song, does it bother you that those lyrics might have been written out beforehand? Do you say, oh, he didn't come up with it on the spot. That was just a song he learned. That doesn't strike any of us as insincere. We realize that words written out ahead of time can be perfectly sincere and can be wonderful expressions of love and any other kind of emotion that we might want to uh, mention. So that's that's no objection at all. Um, another um, possible objection is that um, either the Book of Common Prayer I- itself or the, the customs of our church might introduce superstitions, superstitious or idolatrous practices. And we want to take that seriously because that's ob- absolutely something we want to completely avoid is anything that would be superstitious or idolatrous in the way that we worship God. But in fact, the Book of Common Prayer has always been very careful to avoid just that. There is the famous um, black rubric in the um, English Book of Common Prayer. The, the English Book of Common Prayer is actually um, the, our standard Book of Common Prayer in terms of explaining how worship works. The 1928 is the book we actually use, but the English 1662 and its explanations are our doctrinal standard for how worship works. It's very confusing, but don't worry about it too much. <laughs> but so, but the, in the English prayer book, there's something called the Black Rubric. And it explains that when we kneel to receive communion, that is not meant as an act of kneeling or bowing towards the elements of communion. We are not bowing towards the bread. We are not bowing towards the wine um, because that would be bowing to a created thing. And the second commandment says we are not to bow down to any created thing. That would be idolatry. But the, bre- the black rubric of the Book of Common Prayer explains that it's done as an act of humility. We are explaining that we are humble servants of an almighty king and that we are not worthy to be his servants. That's, that's what that kneeling is supposed to express. Similarly, when we, when we bow at the name of Jesus and when we bow to the procession as it goes by, we're doing that because you bow to the procession of a king. That's the way you show respect to a king. We're not bowing to a metal cross. We're not bowing to a wooden table. We're not bowing to man-made things. That would be idolatry. But we are bowing out of respect to the king whom we serve, who's represented by those people doing those actions. So I would say that properly understood, neither the Book of Common Prayer nor our liturgy and customs have anything in them superstitious or idolatrous. So let us make use of the Book of Common Prayer. Let us remind ourselves of our job as offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Let us let it remind us of a full figured picture of the gospel. Let us let it remind us and enrich our private devotions and our prayers that we might pursue God more wholeheartedly and live more fully the Christian life. Amen. Amen.